The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we took a break last week uh, as Bishop Michael Nazarali was with us, but today we will resume our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, let me encourage you uh, to bring your Bibles uh, to this class and to church. Um, I'm not going to do what Al Phillips does, and that is promise you a dollar if you bring it, um, because <laughs> I'll be broke, but uh, nevertheless, I can assure you there will be stars in your crown uh, if you do bring your Bibles to this class. So let me encourage you to do that. Again, just a reminder, if you're joining us for the first time, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, but whatever translation you want to use will be perfectly fine. Sometimes even a difference in translations can illuminate the text from time to time, and we may even see that over the course of the next several weeks. Well, at any rate, today we are in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in the Sermon on the Mount at verse 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew 5, 13, where Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We said when we first started this study of the Sermon on the Mount that it's important to remember that everything that Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5, at least in this first part of Matthew chapter 5, is intended to be descriptive, not prescriptive. Uh, This sermon isn't about Jesus saying, you should be doing this. And if you do this, you will become a citizen of the kingdom of God. What Jesus is actually saying is, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is how you live. So this is a picture of what it looks like to live in a kingdom way in a fallen world. This is what a citizen, a subject of the king of kings, really looks like. So if you're a Christian, you can take what Jesus says here in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount and compare your own life to it. So it can be a means of of determining if, in fact, you are walking with the Lord, but it is really intended to be a picture, a description of what a person who is doing that already looks like. And what does a citizen of the kingdom of God look like? Well, Jesus has told us very clearly here in those eight Beatitudes. He said a citizen of the kingdom of God is one who is poor in spirit. We took a look at what that meant. To be poor in spirit doesn't mean to be poor physically. Uh, Those of you who are at the 8 o'clock service, you heard Mark Bouton talk a little bit about this. Poverty is not a virtue. It's an economic state. So when Jesus talks about being poor in spirit, he's not talking about our bank account. Jesus is talking about our attitude. 
in terms of ourselves. How do we regard ourselves? To be poor in spirit is to say and to mean those words, I am not worthy so much as to what? Gather up the crumbs under thy table. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. A citizen of the kingdom of God recognizes that in terms of their relationship with God, they are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under his table. That's the first mark, Jesus said, of a citizen of the kingdom of God. The second mark, he says, is that a citizen of the kingdom of God mourns. Mourns what? Well, we said there are many things in life that we can mourn. There are disappointments. There's the loss of a loved one. There are missed opportunities. There are all sorts of things that you and I can mourn over. And many of us do. I've known people who've spent their whole lives mourning over missed opportunities. But when Jesus talks about mourning here, that's not what he's talking about. We have to remember that with Christ, all things are made new. The past is the past. The slate is wiped clean. When Jesus talks about mourning here, he's talking about mourning what? Mourning our sins. You'll see that one beatitude flows to the next. So if you are poor in spirit and you're worthy, you're recognized that you're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under his table, then you will automatically mourn the sin in your life. Let me see a show of hands this morning. How many sinners do we have out there today? Oh, I'm glad to see. And then I'm in good company. But it's one thing to acknowledge that we're a sinner. It's another thing to mourn it. This is why, as you've heard me say many times before already, I love the right one confession of sin. We acknowledge and bewail. It's one thing to acknowledge that you're a sinner. It's another thing to bewail. It's one thing to be sorry that you did it. It's another thing to truly mourn these things. So Jesus said, a mark of the citizen of the kingdom of God is that they mourn. A mark of the citizen of the kingdom of God, he says, is that they are meek. He said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, that's not what we're taught in our day and age. We're taught that the strong inherit the earth. When we hear that word meek, we automatically think weak. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about gentleness. A meek person doesn't feel that they have to somehow bring about retribution. A meek person is someone who trusts to God to vindicate. Jesus goes on, a citizen of the kingdom of God is one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. What does he mean by righteousness here? He means a right relationship. A right relationship with God, and as a consequence of a right relationship with God, a right relationship with our fellow human beings. This is one of the reasons why we talked about the peace coming where it does in the liturgy. It always comes after the confession of sin. Once we have peace with God, that automatically means we should have peace with one another. It comes after the confession of sin, but prior to the service of Holy Communion, prior to going to the altar. A citizen of the kingdom of God hungers and thirsts for that right relationship with God. When they're not in a right relationship with God, something is wrong, and they they cannot be at peace. I see this sometimes with my children. Uh, When they are disciplined, they sulk. Do you ever have children do that? They, they sulk. I, I dealt with this yesterday. One was climbing through the car, and we got a new car, and he was climbing through the car, and I said, get in the back and stop climbing. And he climbs into the back, and he's a chatterbox, and all of a sudden there's silence. And I look in the rearview mirror, and he's sulking. 
Now, I knew I was sulking. He was sulking because he was not in a right relationship with his father. And I said, son, it doesn't have to be that way. We can fix this. All you need to do is say you're sorry. And that's when the tears started. I am so sorry. <laughs> he couldn't stand the fact that he was out of sort with his father. A person who is a citizen of the kingdom of God cannot stand that they are out of sorts with their father in heaven. They hunger and they thirst for that right relationship with God and for a right relationship with others. Citizen of the kingdom of God is merciful. We said that mercy is grace in action. It is relieving the consequences of sin in the lives of others. It's what we saw in that parable of the Good Samaritan. He went out, and at great cost to himself, he alleviated the suffering of that man beaten by the side of the road. Jesus said, a citizen of the kingdom of God, a subject of the king of kings, is merciful. Merciful. Citizen of the kingdom of God is pure in heart. Doesn't mean perfect here. To be pure in heart means you don't have a divided heart. So many of us have divided hearts, but a citizen of the kingdom of God has no divided heart. They are loyal and they are loving toward God. Citizen of the kingdom of God, he said, is a peacemaker. That is one who shares the gospel in a sense that we can have peace with God and peace with one another. And then he goes on to say this, a citizen of the kingdom of God is one who will be persecuted, but they will be persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said, that's a picture. You want a snapshot? You've heard the expression, a picture's worth a thousand words. Jesus said, if you want a picture of the citizen of the kingdom of God, what it looks like to really be a Christian, if you want to know if you're walking with the Lord, take a look at your life side by side with what you see there in those eight Beatitudes. That's a picture. That's a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus goes from there to where we are today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and following where he talks then about the effect or the influence that a citizen of the kingdom of God will have on the world. He said, if this is the way that you are living, if you are living like a citizen of the kingdom of God, he said, recognize this, you will make a difference in the culture. You will have a positive effect. You know, this is one of the most important things for us as human beings, to know that we are making a difference. Uh, some years ago, a man by the name of Bob Buford wrote a book called Halftime. Has anybody ever read that book, Halftime? If you haven't, let me commend it to you. It's a great book. He says, many of us spend the whole first part of our lives trying to be successful. But then, he said, we reach the point where we're successful, and the question is, what now? Because what the heart craves is not really to be successful. What the heart craves, above all else, is to be significant. It's to make a difference, to leave our mark, a lasting mark on the world. And he said, so the first part of our lives we spend in success, but the second part of our lives, when we reach that halftime point, be about significance. 
Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here in verses 13 and following. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Note here, he doesn't say, you should be the salt of the earth. He's emphatic. He says, if you're living according to the Beatitudes, if that is a picture of your life, then you what? You are already the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. What does Jesus mean when he talks about us being the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Well, if you were here for my very first sermon at St. Philip's, when I first got here back in the spring, you know that I preached on this very text. So some of this you have already heard, but there'll be a little bit extra in here. And I want to pause, if we have the time at the end, and just get some feedback from you. Um, It's not often that you'll get an opportunity to ask questions because I normally have more material than I can cover in time, but hopefully today we'll give you a little bit of time, and if not today, then the next time, to ask any questions that you may have about this. When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, what does he mean? Well, you have to remember that in the first century, salt's primary purpose was to be a preservative. Uh, In the first century, there was no refrigeration Uh, They did not have ice. This was a Mediterranean culture, of course. Um, Things had a tendency to spoil. And so salt was used primarily as a preservative. It was rubbed into meat to help stem the tide of putrefaction and decay. So when Jesus says to us, you are the salt of the earth, if you're living this way, you will be the salt of the earth, what he is telling us is two things. First of all, he's telling us that this world of ours, the earth as it is, is in a state of decay. It is going rotten. Now that is not a popular message today. Because what's the old song say? You have to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. So the idea is we we wanna have a positive mental attitude. We wanna believe positively about people, positively about the world. But the scripture is very clear, this world of ours, though it was made good, has gone bad. It is in the process of spoiling, and you don't have to look far to see it. Keep your finger there in Matthew, and just flip for a moment over to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3. And listen to what Paul says here. And you tell me if this is a familiar picture. Paul writes, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. They'll be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. This was read in church a few months back, and the person who was reading it came up to me and said, when was that lesson written? Yesterday? Is that a familiar picture? Of course it is. Aren't we living in that time? 
My goodness, when I read through this, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their pains, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderers. My goodness, I've been in churches where that's the vestry. <laughs> Not this church, but other churches where that's the vestry. And you think to yourself, my goodness, this was written in the first century. How far afield have we come in the past 20 centuries? So when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying, that is the world in which we live. It is a world in which people are morally confused. We live in an information age. But we lack wisdom. We can tell you how to clone a sheep, but we cannot discern whether or not we should do it. And so we are in a perilous time, and Jesus is saying, if you are the salt of the earth, one of your functions, if you are living like this, is that you will actually, listen to this, help to stem the tide of that moral and spiritual decay in the world. What a wonderful calling and vocation. You could hardly have anything that would be more significant in this day and age than to do that, to stem the tide of the moral and spiritual decay that we see evident in the world around us here at the dawn of the 21st century, when people are desperately looking for something that makes sense. We are living in a broken and fallen world, and the purpose of salt is to help stem the tide of decay. Second thing, of course, that salt did in the first century world was that it served, as it does today, as a condiment. Uh, Americans understand this perhaps better than anything else. We love salty foods. I mean, who wants to eat food without salt? I confess, and I know doctors get really upset when you say this sort of thing, but it's a fact. First thing I do when I sit down at a meal is reach for the salt shaker. And oftentimes I do that even before I've tasted the food. What did Julia Child say? When in doubt, more butter? Well, when in doubt, more salt. I mean, that's just sort of the way we operate, isn't it? Because salt brings out what? It brings out the flavor in food. And food without salt is what? It is bland. It is insipid. It's not just that it doesn't taste good. It's that it doesn't taste at all. It doesn't taste at all. You know, that's what most people are searching for. They're searching for life with zest, with taste, with excitement in it. That's one of the reasons why I love C.S. Lewis's books. I know Brian is the, is the resident expert here on C.S. Lewis. But it's that last scene in the, in, in the last battle where the children think that they have, you know, they're going to be sent back into what? The Shadowlands, back into what we call the real world. That they're going to have to leave Narnia. They're going to have to leave Aslan. And Brian, what does he say? <laughs> Help me out here. <laughs> he starts off by saying, have you not guessed? And then he says the, uh, the, the term is over the holidays cast the past. I don't know which one of those lines. This is the beginning of the great story right. in which what? In which the, this is only the cover and the title page of the great story where every chapter is better than the one before. Hmm. Have you ever read a book? when you're sorry to get to the end of it. 
There are some you just want to read the last page and be done with it and put it back on the shelf. But there are some stories that when you read through them and you get to the end, you're disappointed. Gosh, I didn't want that to end. Listen, that's what heaven is going to be like. <laughs> we tend to th- If you think that heaven is going to be sitting around on a bunch of clouds, plucking harps all day, who wants to go? <laughs> when you live in Charleston, if that's what heaven is like, who wants to go? It is the great adventure. It is the great adventure in which each chapter, each day, each page, each line is more exciting than the one before. But you see, as Christians, we already know that. We're already living that adventure. We're going to enjoy it in its fullness. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It has not entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. But if we're Christians, we're already engaged in that great adventure. The great battle, the only only good news for us is we know how it ends. Everybody else is sort of sitting on the edge of their feet, biting their nails, wondering if it's going to come out okay in the end, but we know. And it is our job to live in such a way that people may see in us something different. It's one of the things that I find so impressive about the early church. Did you notice, if you read in the book of Acts, the early church did not do a whole lot of what we would call outreach. For the most part, the early church, in those very earliest days, did inreach. That is to say, they cared for one another. We're told they shared everything in common, and no one had any need. And they lived in such a way that people, and yet we're told the church grew. Well, you say, well, if they didn't do outreach, how did the church grow if they were only doing inreach? It's because in that world, where it was every man for himself, they saw these Christians caring for one another. And there was something about the way they loved each other and cared for them that the outside world was provoked to jealousy. I'm reminded of a story that was shared at my wedding. Not everybody remembers their wedding homily, but I remember mine. Um, A priest um, in North Carolina was telling this story. He told the story between the difference between heaven and hell. You probably heard the story before. He said there was a man who was given an opportunity to have a vision of heaven and a vision of hell. And he was asked, which one do you want first? And he said, oh, I'll take the vision of hell. He said, let's get the bad news over with. And so the angel said, well, just close your eyes and relax. And he closed his eyes and he felt himself moving. And suddenly he came to a full stop. And the angel said, open your eyes. And he opened his eyes and he felt this cool breeze on his face. And he saw this beautiful mountain and this lake and a huge banquet table filled with the most delectable foods. And all these people sitting around the table. But he looked at all of the people and they were all gaunt and emaciated. Have you heard this story before? They were all gaunt and emaciated. And the man said to the angel, What's the problem with these people? Why don't they eat? And he said, well, take a look at their arms. And he looked at their arms, and they had braces on their arms that made it impossible for them to put the fork into the food and lift it to their mouth. And so there they were in the presence of all of this delectable food, but they could not eat. They could move their arms to the right and to the left, but they could not move 
the arm to their mouth. And the man said, this is horrible, this is horrible. Take me to heaven. I want my vision of heaven now. And the angel said, close your eyes. The man closed his eyes and he felt himself moving, came to a full stop. He immediately opened his eyes and what did he see? This beautiful mountain, this crystal lake. He saw this huge banquet table filled with delectable eats. And he looked around and all the people were sitting around the table and they were all well fed and satisfied and healthy. And the first thing he did is he looked for what? For those braces on their arms. And guess what? They were there. They were there. He said, well, how is it that those other people in hell were, 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 were perishing, but these people seem so well fed and hungry, they still have those braces? And he said, look at them. And he noticed that while they could not take the fork and put it into the food and bring the food to their mouth, they could feed each other around the table. He said, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. It's not us trying to feed ourselves, it is us feeding one another and finding ourselves well satisfied. My goodness, if we were to do that, if the people of St. Philip's were to care for each other in such a way like that, that nobody in our congregation was in need, physically, emotionally, spiritually, we would not be able to contain the number of people who would want to join this congregation. We would not be able to contain the number of people who would be trying to get into the doors. See, that's how you live with zest. That's how you bring out the flavor in life, the tang in life, and people say, whatever it is that they've got, I want it, and they reach for the salt. They reach for the salt. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, this is part of what he means. We are to bring out the flavor in life. Salt has another value, though. Salt has a medicinal value. Now, you've all heard the expression, don't rub salt in wounds. But actually, in the ancient world, the reason why that expression came up is because that is precisely what they did. They would rub salt in wounds, and it's painful, but salt actually serves as an antiseptic. Now, try it sometime. If you ever scrape your leg and you go swimming in the ocean, you will discover that the salt water does what? It facilitates the healing process. One of the old home remedies is when you have a sore throat, what do you do? You gargle with salt water. Some people gargle with vodka. I suppose that works as well, but... But the old home remedy was what? You gargle with salt water, and it facilitates the healing process. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he says, if you are living, as we see in the Beatitudes, he said, you will be a people who have a preserving effect on a broken and fallen world. How many of you are deeply concerned about the culture out there? How many of you are deeply concerned about your country and the future of the country and the context in which your children and grandchildren are growing? And you want to know what can be done about it? Well, you can be the salt of the earth. That is what you are called to be. As the salt of the earth, you can bring out the zest, the tang in food. People are looking for something to bring flavor to life. And most of them spend their whole lives going from one thing to the next. I'm reminded of that fellow who's the president of Virgin, the Virgin Company, Virgin Atlantic Airlines, Virgin Records. What's his name? Branson. Branson. 
Uh, I, I saw a biography of him one time just on one of the, you know, the television stations. And he was just talking about this was a man who was constantly looking for the next exciting thing. He was always looking. He had done so much that he was always looking for the next thing, the next exciting thing. Nothing would satisfy. You know, salt makes a person thirsty. Did you ever notice that? We should be making people thirsty. Thirsty for what we have. That's part of what it means to be the salt of the earth. But it also has this medicinal effect. It can help heal wounds. That's what we should be doing, healing the wounds of the nations. Here's a fourth thing about salt that's interesting. I don't know if Jesus had this in mind, but it was certainly true in the first century. Salt was common. We're not talking, Jesus never says here, you are the uranium of the earth. <laughs> he, he never says you're the oil of the earth, or the gold of the earth, or the diamonds, or the silver of the earth. He says you're the salt. Salt is a common substance. It can be found anywhere and everywhere. Which is a message to us that you don't have to be great. You don't have to have a Harvard degree. You don't have to have a six-figure salary. You can be whoever you are, but if you are living, as we see there in the Beatitudes, in that first section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you will be salt in this world. So never despair and think to yourself, well, I'm beyond my prime. I cannot be used of God. Let me tell you, you can. At any age, in any position in life, it does not matter. You can be the salt of the earth. Salt is a common substance. And here's the fifth thing to note about salt. It's invisible. It's invisible when it gets rubbed into the meat. Did you ever notice that? You rub it into meat. Some of you have heard of salt pork. You've heard of a Virginia cured ham. When you rub the salt in, it disappears. And sometimes being salt, being Christians in the world, can be a painful thing. Jesus said, you will be persecuted. He didn't say, in this world you may have trouble. It's likely you'll have trouble. He said, in this life you will have trouble. But he said, be of good cheer, for I have what? I've overcome the world. So be aware of the fact you will face persecution. We'll talk about that in just a moment. You will face it. But the wonderful thing about salt is, even when it disappears you can still taste it. You can still see its effect. You can still feel its influence. How many of you would like to know that when you're dead and gone to glory, the effect of your life is still going to be felt for generations to come? Don't we all? Live in such a way that you'll be proud of what they put on your tombstone. Now many of us say, I, I know what I want put on my tombstone. I'm going to write it down and I'm going to make sure she puts it on there. Let me tell you something, you'll never know. She may tell you, I got it, honey. But then when you're gone, she may think to herself, the truth will out. Live in such a way that you will not be embarrassed by what they Put on your tombstone. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. He goes on to say something else. He says, you are also the light of the world. Verse 14, 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says you are the light of the world, but it's important to remember that at best we are a reflected light. Because in John chapter 8, Jesus also goes on to say, I am the light of the world. And he is the true light. He said the true light that was coming into the world was to banish the darkness. So Jesus is the true light. We are a light, but ours is a reflected light. Whatever light, whatever illumination we may bring to the world, it is reflected. It is like the light of the moon. But it is nevertheless a light. It may not be as brilliant as the light of the sun, but the moon still casts a great deal of light when it's full. So Jesus says, you are the light of the world. The first thing to remember is that it's a reflected light. Jesus is the true light. If somebody is really looking for the full light of the sun, our job is to point them to Jesus Christ. But what is the function of light? What does light do? Well, of course, the most natural thing that light does is it brings illumination. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's telling us that the world is in a state of decay. The world is in a state of going rotten. When Jesus said, you are the light of the world, he is telling us, by consequence, that the world is also dark. We live in a darkened world. Jesus' world was darkened. You know, sometimes we reflect back on the ancient world with great romance, don't we? I mean, how many of you like those BBC costume dramas, those period dramas? You know, we all love Downton Abbey and all of that. Let me tell you something. Those lives and that time period were not as romantic as we tend to think. My mother used to always say, oh, I wish I'd lived at the time of Gone with the Wind. My mother's from England, so I think that's, you know, the English just sort of think that's very romantic. Let me tell you something. I know a little bit about that time period, and I used to say to my mother, no, you don't. There was no air conditioning. Um... Horses didn't wear diapers. Um, you're, you had to wear a corset. I mean, women died in childbirth. People, the average lifespan was you were an old man at 50, a real old man at 50, which means some of you are living on borrowed time. I mean, some of you are absolute medical miracles at this point. But, but we all recognize, don't we? We have this romantic view of the world, and Hollywood doesn't do anything to help it. We see those old movies, and we see actors like James Mason and Kirk Douglas, and even today, Russell Crowe and The Gladiator and so forth. How could the world have been dark with people like James Mason and Russell Crowe? (laughs) But the world was dark, and the world is dark today. And what the world needs is illumination. People don't even know where to go to find true source of happiness and joy. And our job is to bring illumination. Now, when you bring illumination, a number of things happens. First thing that happens is that light has a tendency to expose. We need to be aware of that. Light will expose things. Uh, Look at John chapter 3 for just a moment. Jesus said this, and this is the judgment. The light, he's emphatic here, the true light, the definite article, the light 
has come into the world. And people, what? Loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Did you ever notice that most crimes take place at night? Most houses are broken into at night. Most murders take place at night. Why is that? Well, it's because you see it's under the cover of darkness. And what happens when you throw on the light? The perpetrators of the crimes are exposed. They're exposed. Why is it that when you go out for a romantic dinner, you always go to a candlelit restaurant? How many of you like to go for a romantic dinner under fluorescent lights? <laughs> Nobody does, and I'll tell you why. Because we all look better by candlelight. Isn't it the truth? Yes. Be honest. Let's be honest. Because when you turn on the bright light, what does it do? It exposes all those cracks and flaws and blemishes. But everybody looks so wonderful by candlelight. When the light comes into the world, one of the things it does is it brings illumination. But that illumination brings exposure. It brings exposure. I call this the, the parable of the overturned board. When we were kids, we would go out and in Pennsylvania, we would go snake hunting. I don't recommend that here. You've got all kinds of venomous snakes here, cotton mouths and that sort of thing. Where I grew up, we really didn't have. You'd run into the odd copperhead, but it was rare in the part of Pennsylvania where I grew up. Mostly it was just garden snakes and you know, green snakes and red racers and these, these non-venomous snakes. And as kids, we would go out and we'd collect these things. And the place that you always looked was over in, under an old log. And it's interesting, you'd, you'd kick over the log, and the first thing that happened was the sun would hit an area that it had not penetrated for some time. And what did you see immediately? All of these creepy crawlies, all of the creatures of the dark that scatter. That's what light does. So when you live in this way, yes, you will draw people into the faith, but let me tell you something, by living the way that Jesus describes, you will also expose the darkness in the lives of other people. That's why Jesus said you will be persecuted, because you will have a convicting effect on other people. You won't even have to try. You don't have to preach at them. Just by the way you live your life, people will feel convicted. You will expose them. But here's the second thing that light does. Light, when it hits an area that has been exposed, that hasn't been exposed, it brings growth. When we kick over those logs, all of those creepy crawlies would run for cover. But the other thing that we would notice was the grass underneath that old log or that old board, it was white and it was sickly. But go back a week later. And under the sun's warming influence, one of the things that you will notice is that that grass that was so beaten down and so sickly and so white has suddenly come back to life. It is green and it is growing and it is flourishing. When Jesus said, you are the light of the world, this is what he's saying we should be doing. We should be exposing the works of darkness by the way we live. People being convicted. 
But that conviction is not to drive them to despair. It is to bring them into the full light of Christ and His glory so that His warming influence, His love, His grace, His mercy can so affect their lives that they will grow up into the full stature of Him. Now you may be thinking to yourself, this is hard work. Again, Jesus is saying it's not hard work. It's what happens naturally if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God and a subject of the king. Let me give you an illustration of it here this morning. Uh, turn to John chapter 8. Here's a powerful story. If you've got your Bible with you, you may notice that this is a story, oddly enough, that is omitted in some of the earliest manuscripts. But most scholars are of the mind that it is actually still a part of the Jesus tradition. You're familiar with the story. It's the woman caught in adultery. And what's particularly interesting about this particular story is that it is followed immediately in John's Gospel by Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. So this is a picture of what the light does. Early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And this was said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. It's one of the most powerful stories you'll find anywhere, and it's one of my favorites. Here's Jesus. This woman is brought before him. It's interesting to note that we're told she was caught by the Pharisees and the scribes in the act of adultery. Now, the first question that pops into my mind was, where were they? that they should catch her in the act. What keyholes were they looking through, you see? But of course, that's not the point of the story. They were looking through keyholes. For all we know, they were engaged in the same activity. But this woman was just a pawn. They were just using her. The whole point was to do what? To catch Jesus, to entrap Jesus, and to discredit him in the eyes of the people. How were they going to do that? Well, the law clearly stated that a woman caught in adultery deserved to be stoned to death. That's what the law stated. Jesus had said on one occasion he did not come to destroy the law, but to do what? To fulfill it. But on the other hand, Jesus was always out there talking about grace and mercy and forgiveness. I've not come to call the righteous, but to do what? Call the sinners. Well, you can't have it both ways. That's what they were thinking. So here's their opportunity to entrap Jesus. They bring this woman, throw her down in front of the Lord, and said she's been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law says she deserves to be stoned. What do you say? 
And how, no matter how Jesus answers, they think they've got him. Because on the one hand, if he says, well, the law is the law, and I did say I did not come to destroy but to fulfill the law, half of the people are going to go away very disgruntled because they're going to say, well, what about the grace and the mercy you've been talking about? On the other hand, if Jesus says, well, let's show her grace and mercy and forgiveness, then somebody's going to say, well, he's no friend of the law. So they think they've got him. Don't play poker with Jesus. <laughs> That's the lesson here. Don't play poker with Jesus. What does the Lord do? Well, the text says that he knelt down and he wrote in the dust. Then he stood up and he looked at them and he said, He who has no sin, cast the first stone." Now, we're never told what Jesus wrote. C.S. Lewis made the comment that this is one of the things that makes the story so authentic. He said, we don't know what Jesus wrote. If this was a made-up story, we would have been told exactly what he wrote. Now, many of the English evangelicals have insisted that what Jesus was writing were the sins of all the people who were standing around. <laughs> and when they saw their own sin, they did what? They dropped their stones and went away. But Kenneth Bailey, who's written a wonderful book, I commend it to you, called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He, was, he grew up a child of missionaries, and he knows the Middle East. He just died recently. But he knew the Middle East intimately. And he says he knows exactly what Jesus wrote. When Jesus knelt down on the ground, he wrote, She shall be stoned. And I once had an opportunity to meet Ken and talk with him. In fact, I had him down to St. Helena's a couple of times. And I said, how do you know that's what he wrote? And he said, because that's what the law in Leviticus says. She shall be stoned. He said, but the law also says that her accusers must be the first to cast the stone. Now, he says, the key to understanding this passage is where the event took place. The event took place in Jerusalem near the Golden Gate, or the Temple Gate called Beautiful. It's the main entrance going into Jerusalem. You came down off of the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and up through the Golden Gate into Jerusalem. That was the route that Jesus took on Palm Sunday. So this is a very prominent place. And during the festivals, and this was taking place during a festival, the Romans would bring in extra troops to keep the peace because the Jews were always rising up. And right there behind the Golden Gate on the Temple Mount was what was known as the Antonia Fortress. It was the home of the Roman garrison. And by this point in Israel's history, the Jews had lost the right to execute people for capital crimes. The Romans could execute people. That's one of the reasons why the Jews did not kill Jesus. The Romans did because the Jews did not have the right to do it. If the Jews killed anybody, the Romans would have clamped down hard on them. So this event takes place right there in full sight of the Roman garrison. So picture this. All of these Roman soldiers up there on the parapets. And they see this man down there teaching the crowds. And they're keeping a close eye on that because they don't know what these Jews are up to. And all of a sudden, they see these religious leaders coming, and they're dragging this poor woman, and they throw her down in front of Jesus. And they're watching. And Jesus knows they're watching. And so he said, all right, the law says she shall be stoned. But then he stands up and he says, I'll stand by the law. 
But the law also states what? Her accusers must cast the first stone. So you've accused her. I'll uphold my end of the bargain. You uphold your end of the law. You have to cast the first stone. And they're standing there, and they look up and they can see those Roman soldiers. And they know that if they take any action, those Roman soldiers are coming down for them. And so there they are, and they look at the woman, and they look at Jesus, and they look at those Roman soldiers. And they look at the woman, and they look at Jesus, and they look at the Roman soldiers. And they look at Jesus. And they look at the Roman soldiers. And Jesus has publicly exposed them as what? As the cowards they are. And they drop their stones. And one by one, they drift away. And Jesus has publicly exposed them. The light has come into the world and he's exposed them for what they really are, hypocrites. And this marks a turning point in the Gospel of John because up to this point, they are ready to discredit Jesus. From this point on, he has to die. What Jesus does on this occasion is, listen to this, he steps between this woman's sin. Notice he said, go and sin no more. He didn't say what she did was right. But he steps between her sin and the righteous judgment of the law. And he willingly takes the punishment on himself. She will go free. But as a consequence of what he's done, he will have to die. That's what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. He steps between our sin and God's righteous judgment and he takes that on himself. They're exposed, you see, by the light. This woman is warmed by the light. And she goes on. And I suspect she went on to follow Jesus to her life's end. I believe that one day I'll have the opportunity to meet that woman in heaven. And so will you. That's what it means to be the light of the world. Let me ask you a question. Is that a picture of your life today? Are you the salt of the earth? Are you the light of the world? Because let me tell you, this broken, bland, dying, hurting, darkened world needs people like that. When we come back together again next week, by God's grace, I will give you an opportunity to ask questions. But we'll ask the question, what if the salt loses its flavor? What happens if we take our light and put it under a basket? And then we'll ask the question, practically speaking, on a day-to-day -day basis, what does it mean to be salt and light day by day? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have made us citizens of the kingdom of God. Grant that more and more we may live in such a way that we may be salt in this world, that we may help stem the tide of decay and bring out the true flavor, that we may have a medicinal effect upon this sickened world. 
And grant us, Lord, to live in such a way, to live out the Beatitudes that we may be light as well, exposing the creatures of the darkness, bringing warmth and growth to those who desperately need it. Grant this, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Also use the analogy of walking into the kitchen.